Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Wes Blakesley, and you're in the AGD podcast series. Today's discussion centers on dental coding, always a challenge and always changing. Our guest is Dr. Greg Grobeyer, the chief editor of both Dr. Charles Blair's book, Dental Coding with Confidence, and Practice Boosters Insurance Solutions Newsletter. Greg, before we take a deep dive into dental coding, tell us a little bit about how your journey took you from being a practicing dentist of about a decade to working as a lecturer, an author, and an educator. I am Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. I've been uh, in the dental industry since the late 90s. I had uh, 10 years practicing in West Tennessee in a, in a private practice, a group practice. And I went through a cancer battle when I was 36 years of age. And so ended up with uh, colon cancer. I had half my guts removed on uh, one side. So I uh, uh, went through chemotherapy and that left me with numb fingers. And nobody likes to go to a practitioner that drops stuff all the time. So I had to transition. I had been uh, working with dental practice management companies over the time. So I, I flipped over and went to that side, started coaching and consulting with offices all over the United States, did that for a while, uh, ended up uh, having that business bought out. And so I went into industry writing. And so I've been writing for both the consumer side and the dental side uh, for many, many years. And, uh, and that, uh, eventually led me to Dr. Charles Blair. He was in a position where he was looking for someone to edit the insurance solutions newsletter. I stepped in helping with that. And uh, since then, my role has expanded. I'm now speaking. Uh, he's no longer on the road, although he is very, very involved each and every day, uh, still with Practice Booster and with uh, the Coding with Confidence books and everything that, that we touch. Uh, he is just a powerhouse in the industry. And so I'm, I'm very blessed to have him as my mentor. I've been learning from him and uh, trying to take his message and continue to get that out uh, to uh, the people. And so here we are. That's what brought me to you today. Oh, Craig, it's great to have you here. Just as an aside, Dr. Blair has been on the podcast, I think, two times, two uh, great recordings. Uh, I have uh, both of his books. Uh, we go to Dental Coding with Confidence about every day, it seems, which is why this topic is so necessary, because we don't know that much about coding and certainly need to know more. So I'm just going to take a jump into the first question here. Uh, why, why does the, uh, I guess, was it the ADA? Why do they update the codes annually and not every two, three, four, five years? Well, as you know, dentistry evolves. There's new technologies, there's new procedures, uh, and then even existing procedures, they realize that there's better ways that they could word things, better ways that they could uh, get things to fit uh, to what is actually happening, boots on the ground within clinical practice. And so uh, the ADA uh, every single year uh, accepts uh, potential changes to the CDT from viewers like you from from everyone within uh, the dental field you can turn in you can actually go to ada's website they've got a link there you can make suggestions about changes to the cdt code that comes from 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 everyone and then they have a group called the code maintenance committee it's a group of uh uh, uh people their industry dental industry people there are dental insurance people that are all sitting there together at the same table there's a few more on the dental side than there is on the dental insurance side so we do have a leg up there but they will uh, discuss all those potential changes and decide what's the best fit, uh, how those things need to be updated. And so um, 
this current year, I mean, there were 46 changes uh, that, that happened. Last year, there were 61 in 2021, and, and currently uh, we are on track to have 38 changes for 2023, some of them pretty significant. And uh, so it's constantly evolving and updating. So think about that. If you haven't updated your coding resources in a period of three years, uh, along with the COVID uh, vaccine codes and things that were, I didn't even count, uh, all those changes together, 160 changes over a three-year period of time. Uh, if you haven't updated your resources, you're probably miscoding something. You're behind the ball on something. Uh, so there are deleted codes that are still getting used. Every, every single practice I consult with is using some deleted codes at some point, uh, or they're not aware of certain changes to the codes that they are using that uh, have a direct effect upon not only how they're practicing, but how they're getting reimbursed. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I didn't know that we have access to actually uh, transmitting information to the ADA, that's a real good thing to know. And uh, so, uh, writing on that, uh, let's talk about some examples of significant updates to 2022. Yeah, in 2022, we had the addition of some sleep apnea codes. We've never had that before. It was always just kind of a 999 thing that we did and unspecified. Uh, so there are some sleep apnea codes now. They're all in the adjunctive general services category. Uh, they changed the periodontal splinting codes. They took away the codes that we've had in the past. Uh, the two codes that we did have talked about uh, them being interim. They were provisional. They were not. They were for provisional splinting of teeth. And the ADA felt like, well, we're not always doing that temporarily. Sometimes you're putting those teeth together for a long period of time. That may be uh, uh, how you want to just treat those teeth definitively. And so they took out. Uh, the 4320 and 4321 codes that we had before, they've replaced that with a 4322 for maxillary and 4323 for mandibular, uh, for periodontal splinting. And uh, I'm sorry, not maxillary and mandibular. This is um, the way this one is broken up is internal and external splinting. And so some of those codes, uh, they've gone through and divided into maxillary and mandibular. A lot of the prosthodontic codes are done that way. They had uh, old codes and now they've split them into two. Uh, and they're making the, the coding a little bit, they call it more granular. They want it more, more specificity in what, they're, what the codes represent. So they're wanting to see that. Uh, they also, in orthodontics, they got rid of the entire interceptive subcategory of orthodontics. So whereas before we had a limited, an interceptive, and a comprehensive orthodontic, uh, treatment, and you could do that to uh, child, adolescent, or adult, they got rid of interceptive altogether. And so now everything is either comprehensive or it's not comprehensive, and in which case it'll be limited. They also expanded the definition of limited so that it encompassed everything that interceptive had before. And so that's, that's some of the major changes that happened in 2022. Like I said, 46 total changes. So there's, there's more out there if you want to research it. That's a lot. Let's talk about 2023. What can we look forward to uh, next year as far as changes in the coding? There's a few fairly significant changes. Uh, there's Right now we have uh, the membrane codes that, that most people are using. They all fall under kind of the perio category. There's resorbable and non-resorbable membranes. 
Well, next year they've decided to kind of bust these up and make it again, more granular, more specific to what's being done. So the, the codes that were there in Perio are going to remain in Perio, but those codes are going to be uh, specific to being used around teeth. So the 4,000 codes are going to stay there, uh, but they are going to be a resorbable and a non-resorbable membrane around natural teeth. There are new codes that are coming out that are going to be a resorbable and a non-resorbable membrane around implants. And another one, and that's going to be in the 6,000 or 6,100 area, the implant section. And then there's going to be uh, codes for resorbable and non-resorbable membranes on edentulous arch. So anywhere there's not a tooth or not an implant, and we're trying to do ridge augmentation, that kind of thing, those codes are going to fall in the, in the surgical uh, category. So they'll be in the 7,000s, uh, but there will be two codes for that. And then they've also added on a code for removing uh, the uh, membrane, the non-resorbable membrane. There actually hasn't been a code for that. It's been uh, kind of a repetition of the code of, of placement. And so they've got a separate code that removal, that removal code is for all types of membranes. So those are coming. They're big changes to 9110. That's the palliative. Uh, you're going to be able to use uh, that before it was defined as just being used at an emergency visit. Now you're going to be able to use it even at a normal treatment, as long as it's a different part of the mouth. If you need to smooth the chip over here on the left, the same day you're doing a filling on the right, you can do that now, uh, starting January 1. Um, 4355 has changed up. It's going to, that's the uh, debridement code. Uh, you're going to be able to, to do debridement. It's for anyone who has not only, uh, uh, you know, just the, the full, when you op they open their mouth, they've got one big tooth, you know, it goes all the way around from one side to the other, but it's going to have to be followed up by a D180 next year. Uh, that is the comprehensive periodontal oral evaluation. And so uh, D180 can't be followed up with the 150 or anything like that. So the 180 code is, is, is pertinent. Um, we also have a materials change to porcelain. Uh, the definition of porcelain ceramic is changing. They've changed it in the past. They made it where uh, resin restorations that were highly filled, anything over 50% of an inorganic filler can be considered a, a porcelain ceramic restoration now. But they still had these qualifiers on there that they had to be milled, polished, fired, or pressed. And what they've done is they've taken away those stipulations now, and that's opened up the fabrication of uh, porcelain ceramic to also include 3D printing. And I know on, on, on good terms that there is a material coming out very soon that is going to be over 50% filled. And so you're going to be able to 3D print a porcelain restoration uh, within your office, and it costs about three bucks. Wow. <laughs> for restoration. Big deal there. Another thing coming out is tomosynthesis, and that's um, stationary intraoral tomosynthesis. That's a new type of radiograph that's that's a, a radiographic instrumentation that's hitting the market. Uh, it essentially looks like the normal x-ray head and intraoral sensor that you've got sitting in your operatory right now, but that uh, that sensor the is a little different. And then the head has a collimator in it that's sending seven different beams at slightly different directions. The uh, 
x-ray head picks that up and can actually interpret that into a three-dimensional image. So you're spitting out seven slices of tooth from, from buccal to lingual. And you're able to actually take it one single image, intraoral image, and scroll through it almost the way you do a CBCT or an MRI. Um, and so, and it can, it'll take that and, and also create synthetically a three-dimensional image that can be rotated. You can look for cracks, uh, forget about overlaps, you know, contacts that are, are, are overlapping. You can just scroll to a layer where there's not one. Um, it helps get, uh, if there's a big old buccal restoration of amalgam, you can scroll to where that's not in the way. So um, that's, that's amazing. There's going to be some, some great stuff coming in 2023. I can't wait. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I'd like to talk more about that, but I have so many questions for you here. I'm going to have to move on. Uh, Greg, you teach strategies when it comes to coding. Uh, can you give me a good example of this or maybe two? Sure, sure. Um, strategy, uh, much like when you've got uh, a patient in the office that comes in and is an emergency, they've got a tooth that's hurting. And you've got to open up that tooth and get that patient out of pain. Now, what there are actually more than one code that you could possibly use in this situation. And I want to kind of give you guidance as to when one code is better than the other. If you've got a patient that's coming in and you're opening up that tooth just to get them out of pain, you're debriding the tooth, okay, getting the nerve all out of it, and you are planning on doing the root canal on that tooth later on, okay, it is better to actually code that out as a palliative treatment, okay, and I'll tell you why. If you brought the patient in and you open up the tooth and got the nerve out and you're going to be sending them to an endodontist, it's better to use the pulpal debridement code. That's the D3221. So if you're referring the patient out, do the pulpal debridement code. If you're not referring the patient out, you're going to be seeing them in the office on another day to, to do definitive uh, endodontics, then it's better to use the palliative code. And the reason why is... Uh, once you submit these things to insurance, if you end up doing the endodontic therapy, a lot of the time, the insurer asks for the money back that they paid you on the pulpal debridement code. So you may have gotten paid on pulpal debridement, but once you do the final restoration, they're going to ask for that back. They're going to consider that the first step of the root canal. Okay. Okay. On the other hand, if you end up doing that as a palliative treatment, they can't take that back. That's a separate procedure. And so you get to keep the money for the, for the 9110 and you'll get to keep the money for the root canal. Interesting. But if you are, if you are referring it out, however, the payment on 3221 is going to be better than the 9110 is going to be. Understood. It's better to do that one. So, Greg, if you're bringing this emergency patient in during a busy day and you're basically, you know, uh, limiting your uh, appointments with other patients to see this patient, can you pair that 9110 up with an emergency exam, a limited exam? I think it's a 0140. Yes, yes, yes. Now, the, the 140 is something that you can do. You can do it on its own. Okay. Uh, those are standalone codes. Uh, uh, 9110, as it stands right now, cannot be done with any other treatment. Uh, so you can take PAs, but you can't do any other definitive treatment that same day. 
you can do evaluations, but you can't, you can do x-rays, but you can't do any type of definitive care. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Uh, Greg, what are some of the most common errors that you see in the way things are coded? Uh, one good example of that is, honestly, we see a whole lot of uh, miscoding of surgical extractions. Surgical extractions uh, don't mean that you're picking up a scalpel and you're just laying a flap or you're having to put in a suture. Surgical extraction requires that the tooth be sectioned or that there's bone removed. So if you read the descriptor of the thing, it's actually going to say that the tooth has to come out in more than one piece or you have to take bone away. Just laying a flap, putting in a suture, doesn't is that's still a simple extraction. Uh, another thing is underutilizing the, the D180 code. Uh, a lot of times, if you're getting a patient in the practice, and that can be for a new patient exam or that could be a, for a recare exam, if you are uh, seeing that patient uh, and you're doing a full comprehensive periodontal workup on that patient, you're doing six-point uh, probing and charting, you're doing bleeding points and clinical attachment loss and stuff like that, charts it out as a D180. It, it, it reimburses at a little higher level. Uh, you're able to do that at your comp exam, and you can even do that at perio maintenance visits if the doctor is seeing the patient uh, and you're doing all this work, why not get paid for it? So that's that's a big one. 4346 is another. Uh, if you've got a patient that's in your office, it's got over 30% inflammation of the gums and you're looking uh, uh, at that patient, there's no bone loss, uh, then that's a 4346, which is moderate to severe gingivitis. So that's a great code to use. We're not seeing that as much. And that D110 code that we just talked about, that's another one of the biggest mistakes that I see, and this is controversial, is uh, abutment-supported versus implant-supported restorations. When you've got an abutment-supported uh, implant restoration, what you have is you have the implant that's in the bone, you have a separate abutment that is placed, and then you are fabricating a separate crown to seat on top of that abutment. With an implant-supported restoration, and this is not from me, this is from the ADA. This is their, uh, the way they have defined that, and you can look it up in the uh, uh, their coding companion book. There's, there's information about this every time. There is the implant itself, and then there is what you're attaching to it, which is the crown and an integrated abutment, essentially, but it is not a separate piece. And so that is attached directly to the implant. The implant is supporting the restoration. And so there's not a separate abutment that can be coded uh, apart from that, that restoration. So abutment supported, there's three parts. Implant supported, there's two parts. And we all know the lab has stuck this thing together uh, before they send it to you. Even if you do it chair side, I always get this question, you're still delivering to the mouth one thing and attaching it directly to the implant. And so that's two pieces you can't code a separate abutment. So uh, another thing's insufficient documentation. We're seeing just a lot of errors uh, in practices. There's a lot of steps that are being skipped that uh, if it was just you that was looking at the chart, that wouldn't be a big deal. But if you're, if you're, you're charting for the state board review, 
that may happen five years from now or the the lawsuit that may be happening five years from now uh, there's there's bits and pieces to that that you really want to include that a lot of practices are are just simply not so insufficient documentation is another big thing and that's that's something that we're teaching and uh on now doing seminars on now can we exp expand that a little bit <clears throat> craig excuse me i have new new jersey allergies today uh oh, totally we, understand can we uh, uh address the point of clinical notes versus narratives and i guess the utility or importance of having uh, soap notes, the SOAP. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the a lot of this came up from the fact that we've got the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act. Part of that has got in it uh, uh, a stipulation, a, a portion of that law that's called open notes. And what that means is is that patients are going to have even more unrestricted access to being able to see what their clinical notes are, what their financial notes are. And so you've got a situation where in the past, you know, it was a rare thing for a patient to get a copy of their chart notes. They may be switching dentists or they're moving or something's happening. Um, and that's the only time that they'd lay eyes on those charts. Now, uh, patients are going to have a lot more access to that. And it may even be, in fact, we expect it to be similar to the way medical is now. I've got an app on my phone. I can pull up my uh, doctor's chart notes right now sitting here uh, talking to you. So you've got patients who are bored at three o'clock in the morning and they're like, well, let's play with this new app on my phone. They're gonna be looking at the chart notes uh, and seeing what was said about them. Now, if there's anything in there uh, that is derogatory in any way, you've got the potential for you know, legal motions. You've got uh, attorneys who are probably gonna be out there looking for opportunities like this. And so you, you have to play to that and be thinking about that, uh, about who all's eyes are on your charts. And um, clinical notes, again, you know, they're much more thorough. The narratives uh, usually are just a paragraph. Uh, a few things about that. Uh, box 35 of the 2019 ADA claim form, that's the remarks section. That thing often truncates what you write in there to 80 characters. So that's 80 characters, including spaces, punctuation, the whole bit. The computer, the, the, the practice management software allows you to write up, you can write war and peace in there if you wanted to, the whole thing. Uh, but once you submit it, it's potential that the only, only the first 80 characters of what you wrote get transferred. And so if you've got something that's of any length, you know, 80 characters is not a lot. That's half a tweet, right? So if you've, if you've got anything, you need to make that as an attachment or more and more, we're seeing insurance company is actually asking for the clinical notes from the data service instead of a narrative. Okay. So again, that's somebody else's eyes that are on your chart that weren't before. Um, narratives also must be reflective of what's in the chart notes. It's bad, bad. If you've got somebody up front, who's, who's, adding to the narrative uh, some information that's not in the actual chart notes because uh, uh, Sue up at the front desk, she's been doing this a long time. She knows what gets claims paid. She's gonna change the language a little bit. If it's not in the documentation, it can come back to bite you. So 
we're encouraging the use of soap notes. Soap notes is, has been used in medical for a very long time. That's just subjective, objective, uh, uh, assessment assessment and plan thank you i had a little a little brain fry right there for a second but yeah <laughs> absolutely so subjective is anything that they're telling you objective is anything that you are observing when you're doing your clinical uh, evaluation the assessment basically is the diagnosis that you're making and the plan is anything that you have that you're doing today the treatment that you're rendering and anything you're planning on doing in the future to address that diagnosis that you've made. So we're actually putting out a documentation book that should be out at the beginning of the year. That's going to have a lot of examples of soap notes. And so for each category service, so it's got one in there for endo and it's got one in there for what a core buildup soap note should look like and a crown and a, you know, so it's all there. And so great examples of that in that book uh, and that's, that's coming after the first of the year. Sounds like a book I need to add to my library. It's going to be a good one, I think. Yeah, I bet you it is. Uh, Greg, what procedure is most frequently denied and what can you suggest? Core buildups. Core buildups. Uh, now, there are actually insurance companies out here who at least seem to auto adjudicate, meaning without even anybody looking at the, the thing. If they see core buildup, they will deny it on the first submission, even if everything is right, even if every, all the documentation's there. Uh, so if you get a denial on a core buildup, please, please, please appeal it. Insurance companies know only 30% of uh, claims that are denied are ever appealed, okay? And insurance companies count on this. They know that. That's a way that they don't have to pay a claim. So if they deny it and you don't appeal it, well, you're just out of luck. So absolutely come back and appeal those things. Make sure that you've got the right documentation, that you're saying the right things. And for a core buildup, there's some certain magic words. Um, uh, core buildup should be required for the retention of the crown. Retention being the magic word there. That's the word they're looking for. They're not looking for ideal prep. They're not looking for box form. Uh, they're not looking to, you know, block undercuts, that kind of stuff. They're looking for the retention of the crown. So that's, that's one thing that needs to be said. Another is that uh, how much of the tooth was missing. Uh, Gordon Christensen back in the 90s said that anything where more than half the tooth was gone needed a core buildup and, and everybody's latched onto that. So uh, they're looking for you to say 65% of the tooth was missing after complete preparation. Something like that needs to be in the chart note. Uh, I would also highly suggest that you back that up by taking intraoral photos. Take a picture before you prep the tooth. Take a picture after decay removal so that they can see just what shell of a tooth is left. Then take a picture after that buildup is placed to show that you placed it. And if you've got that in the chart and you're submitting that as well, they, they can't argue with that. And so there we go. Uh, also, if there was an endodontic uh, treatment on that tooth in the past, you want to make sure that the date of that endo uh, is included and the endo prognosis. Uh, you want to say that the prognosis is good as long as that is true. Absolutely tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't make up stuff on, on narratives or in clinical notes. Tell the truth. Uh, do it where it's appropriate. 
and, and code for what you do. Uh, but those are the words. Those are the things that they're looking for when it comes to uh, adjudicating those claims. Greg, if you are restoring an as access opening, say on a mower, would mm-hmm. they can be pretty big and uh, it may encompass a half of the interior volume of the tooth. Is that considered to be a 2391 one service composite or is that uh, a core buildup? It is only a core buildup if you're taking the crown off. And a lot of people are doing that incorrectly. ADA has come out and said that a one surface restoration is the proper uh, thing to use when you're talking about uh, closing up a an endo access hole through a crown. And so uh, it has been, uh, a lot of people code those as core buildups. It's not a core buildup unless you're taking the crown off because the definition of a core buildup is that it will be followed by a crown. They expect it to be followed by a crown procedure. And so, and some people also will, uh, will miscode that as a crown repair. Now, a crown repair uh, used to be a valid code and some insurers, particularly Delta Dental, uh, will still honor that code. But if you look at the code now on crown repair, it says due to materials failure and drilling a hole through the top of a crown is not a materials failure. That was done on purpose. So the proper coding to close an endo access is a one surface restoration, be it composite or amalgam. Thanks for that. That's a great distinction. This time has just blown by here. I feel like I've been sitting on a jet engine. So I'm, I want to try to get one more question and I think it's really important. Uh, I'd like to talk about self-funded versus fully insured plans. Let's see if we can sneak this in. Absolutely, absolutely. There's uh, there's basically two kinds of plans within any given dental office and most patient or most uh, dentists don't even realize it. Uh, it's almost a 50-50 mix in the, in the nationally. And so there are, are self-funded plans and then there are fully insured plans. And if you don't know the difference, then it's gonna, it's gonna affect how you are, uh, are working with these insurance companies. A self-funded plan is gonna be from one of these big companies. They're gonna be Walmart, Amazon, Bank of America, Google. Uh, they are national companies. And so the first distinction between these two is where does the money come from? these big, big, huge companies actually fund their own insurance. They take a big chunk of money and they put it into a trust account. Usually about every 90 days, they'll fund this thing. And then that's the money that's used to pay out claims. They will hire a insurance company to just be the third party administrator. And all that means is they're the paper pusher. They call, they accept the claims. They decide whether things are should be paid or not. And then they use Google, Amazon, Walmart, Bank of America, they use their money to pay for this thing. And so the patient or the employee is paid actually from money that comes from the employer. Uh, On the flip side, a fully insured plan, that's a plan that's going to be paid uh, from uh, money from premium payments. So collection of premiums. And so that's, that's where the money for that comes from, from fully insured plans. But there's a lot of important differences that this makes. Uh, First off, who makes the rules? For a self-funded plan, they're ponying up the money. They get to decide what that plan looks like. They get to define those benefits. And that's really what dental insurance is, is a defined 
benefit plan. They say, okay, we want our employees to have two cleanings a year and we want them to, to, to we'll cover their crown at 50% or whatever it might be. They make the rules. On a fully insured plan, it's the insurance company that makes the rules. They have some predefined packages that they're selling directly to small businesses or to private pay people. Uh, and they have, they're ponying up the money themselves. And so they get to define what those benefits are that those packages include. Uh, the laws that are uh, uh, driving uh, these two types of plans under self-funded plans, those fall under federal law. They're under ERISA, which is the Employment Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. Uh, so they are under federal law. The state laws that are out there apply to fully insured plans, the other kind. So if you're in one of these currently 42 states that have a fee capping for uh, non-covered services law or other similar laws, uh, or you're trying to get the insurance commissioner to do something about how you were treated, um, those only apply to fully insured plans. Self-funded plans, the insurance commissioner has zero uh, sway with those people. It's human resources you need to go to because that comes directly from the company. So big difference in that. Uh, also timeframes for paying claims, uh, self-funded plans. They have to acknowledge that they've received a claim within 90 days, but after that they have, as long as they want to, to actually pay a claim. And we're seeing that happen. We're seeing some claims that are not getting paid for a long, long time. If the, if the company is not funding that trust account, then they are not paying those claims. Um, the fully insured plans, however, they do. Most states have, have laws regarding the time frame in which those claims must be paid. So, and lastly, coordination of benefits. Self-funded plans don't even have to coordinate benefits. They do if they want to. It's up to them to decide. And fully insured plans, now they usually will fall under state law and most states do have laws requiring plans to coordinate benefits. So there's big differences and you have these two types of patients in your practice. And if you don't know which is which, then you're playing by the wrong rules. If you look at the back of somebody's insurance card, you're going to see administered by third party administration by administrative services by that's going to be one of these uh, self funded plans because the insurance is just an administrator. That's all. So if you're seeing that on the card, that's an obvious way to find that out. If not, just ask when you do the original verification call, that's a question that should be added. Are you a self-funded? Are you a fully insured plan? Then you'll know the rules you're playing by, and it's a much easier game to play when you know the rules. Greg, this was so easy. I could go another half an hour. Uh, <laughs> just a fantastic amount of information. We could probably blow the last question into a half-hour podcast. So oh, you, you I absolutely can. can. I, we, I go into more detail when we're lecturing about this. So. I know, uh, but this is great. So, for members listening in who want to study with you, uh, buy your products. Uh, how, how can they reach you? Practicebooster.com uh, is that's the company that I'm working with. That's got all the coding with confidence materials in there. It's also got our uh, our, our speaking opportunities and a lot of other resources on there even the online if you become a member you get access to the online code advisor which is just a coding with confidence that is kind of on steroids it's where you can search for things uh it's right online it's it's you can look by keyword or you can look by code or 
And you can find out a lot of information that way. There's some other resources on there, some forms. And for more information, uh, you should go to uh, practicebooster.com backslash AGD. We've got a special page there just for AGD members. And uh, we'd love to have you look. We've got our, our practice booster coding resources and everything right there available for purchase. And so we'd love to have you there uh, to check it out. Also, I, again, my name is Greg Grobmeyer. I'm Greg at practicebooster.com if you want to email me directly. And so, but uh, that's, that's the best way is to uh, check out practicebooster.com and go from there. Thanks, Greg. This was excellent. Please give my best to Dr. Blair. I definitely will, Wes. And it was great talking to you, sir. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.